Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Second Chronicles, and we are going to start a brand new two-week mini-series to kind of finish up the month of January. And I could tell by just that moment there when I said two-week mini-series, some of you just went, uh-huh, yeah, right, that's cute, listen to him, he thinks he's going to do it in two weeks. Um, this one uh, I'm really excited about and uh, been doing some reading, some different things and, and kind of came across this idea and I love this idea. And so we're going to talk about uh, 21st century temples uh, the next couple of weeks. And so I'm so excited to dive into God's word together. And so we're going to unpack that just a little bit here. But I do need to say, uh, just for a point of reference, somebody asked me a question about the announce after the announcements. And so... Um, I just want to be clear on this. When you come uh, to get your, if you get an absentee ballot at the Welcome Center today, uh, somebody asked if I need my voter ID and registration and all that to get that. So um, you're good. You're fine. We'll take your word on it. So uh, just so you guys know, I appreciate that, Mr. Hodges, for asking that question. Um, And so, but we're going to have a great time uh, this morning. I'm excited to be able to worship him and to get into his word and to see all that God has for us. Um, Also, a quick announcement before I get going into this. I I meant to mention this a little bit ago. Uh, Some of you guys know um, in a couple weeks here, we would normally be doing our football Sunday. Um, That is something we've done the last couple of years. And there's a ministry that puts together a really good kind of video presentation of all these different Christian athletes and football players that share their testimony or share different ways that God is working in their lives. And so um, we have kind of been thinking about that, what we're going to do this year. And so we are still going to do a football Sunday on Super Bowl Sunday, but we're going to do a little different. So normally we would have that, the video and all that. We're not actually going to do that video presentation this year. Um, we're going to change it up a little bit, do some more in-house stuff. And what I mean by in-house, one of the things that we're going to try to see how it goes, and I think it'll be fun. And so I told someone else about this, and they were like, that should be fun. And uh, so we'll see how it goes. But I want general football knowledge. And so we're going to have a couple ladies, a couple guys right here on stage that go back and forth and kind of see who can be the dominant gender that morning. And so we're going to have fun with it. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, but a big thing I want to encourage you on this is um, the reason we do, one of the real reasons we do like a football Sunday or any big Sundays like that is we would love for you to invite. I know you're maybe sitting thinking about, I don't even care about sports. I don't, I don't care for sports. I don't watch sports, whatever. But maybe you've got a coworker or a family member or a friend who is into that. Man, what a great way to invite them to come out to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to get them before the word of God, and they maybe come to know Christ. And so we're going to be doing that here in a couple of weeks. And so make sure you note that. Invite, invite, invite. We would love to see unsaved family members, friends, coworkers coming out. Uh, It's going to be a great time in the morning. Have some fun with it. Uh, Going to get into God's word, obviously. And so um, if you want to be a part of that, we would invite you to be a part of that. And also get the word out to, again, family members, friends, coworkers. We would love to see this place packed with people that are hungry to just get before God's word and give them the gospel that way. And so we're going to jump into this series this morning. And and one thing I want to make as clear as possible when we start this series, and I think it's something that we kind of wrestle with individually, but it's been my prayer going into this mini series. My prayer is that we as a whole will recognize our position before God in Christ and then realize how that position before God in Christ leads us into this world to make a difference for Christ. 
And so here's the kind of summary statement I want to give you for this next couple of weeks. You have a distinct purpose in the world today as a follower of Christ. You have a distinct purpose in the world today as a follower of Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning to know that's not just something we say in church to make ourselves feel good. It's true. You as a follower of Christ have a distinct purpose today. So this is the part we wrestle with, the today part. Really right now, like just as I am, like God can use me. Yes. Yes. Exactly where you are, exactly as you are in Christ, as a follower of Christ, you are usable to God. You might say, well, how in the world does that play out? We're going to talk about that in a little bit here, but let me give you a little bit of a, an idea or a hint at this. When you're at your workplace tomorrow, God can use you. When you're at your house tomorrow, if you're a teenager or a young person, you're at school tomorrow, maybe you're online, you're doing different things. Maybe you can encourage your classmates that way, whatever it is and wherever you are. God can use you exactly where you are to make an impact for him. Think of it this way. God has designed you for just the time as this. Not just the time as 10 years from now necessarily, but right now he wants to use you. And I know that's hard for us to believe because I know we know us, right? We know our limitations. We know our weaknesses. We know our struggles. We know all those things. We look at the world around us and we go, oh man, what are we ever going to do? There are honestly times that I think in the Christian church history, when you study the last 2,000 years, there are countless times where I can only imagine the church said, and I guess we're done. (laughs) Like just wanted to throw their hands up and say, we're done. Because they looked around them and said, there's no way God can be working in all this. But let me tell you, just as they found out, we'll find out, we're finding out that God is using his church to change people's lives for all of eternity. If the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then God is going to use you to do great things in this day and age right now. And I believe that. I believe that God has called us to that. God has not called us to quit. God has called us to endure. And we don't endure in our strength or our abilities because if that was up, it was up to us, we would have quit. I would have quit a long time ago. But he calls us to just lock our eyes on him. What does Hebrews say? Looking unto Unto Jesus, not unto self, not unto culture, not unto this or that thing around us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And why do we look to Jesus? That phrase, looking unto, to look unto, doesn't just mean a casual glance. It doesn't just mean this kind of just quick little look look by. It's to lock our gaze upon him. It's to fix our eyes. Some translations actually use that phrasing, to fix your eyes, to to lock your eyes onto the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we fix our eyes on him? Because he is the one that endured the cross. Amen? He is the one that took all that shame that was cast upon him. Look at this. He says he can save others, but he can't even save himself. Oh, you're the Messiah. Just why don't you go ahead and come on down then? spitting on him and mocking him, all the shame that was poured upon Christ. He says he endured all of that. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that he, in his wisdom, knew this was the payment for sin. And all those who trust in Christ will have a relationship with him for all of eternity. He was redeeming his creation. He was saving you. And that knowledge that he had 
allowed him to endure for the glory of the Father that whole process. So why do I look, why am I encouraged in the book of Hebrews? By the way, that follows a pretty amazing passage about the persecution the church went through, right? Different believers and different times that people went through different levels of persecution. It's saying, listen, when you go through this life, there's going to be rough times. There's going to be persecutions, trials, and struggles. That's why we're not looking at the trial. We're not looking at the storm. Man, what Chris sang this morning, I was standing there thinking like, God, you are so amazing. You could not have designed this better. Man, we don't look at the storm. We look at the creator of all things and say, no, Lord, I'm not fixing my eyes on this temporal stuff. I'm fixing my eyes on the eternal risen Savior. And he's the one, because he's endured all this. What does he say? He will give me strength to endure what I go through. And so when we talk about this idea of being designed and created for a time just as this, I don't say that as just a trite Christian saying. It's not just something we just throw out there to kind of make ourselves feel better, or to feel good about ourselves, or to feel like we can do something or motivate us. But I pray that as we realize we're created for a time like this, it does motivate us. It does allow us to realize, oh, wait, God, you, you're not affected by what I see going on around me. You've not fallen off your throne. You are fixed. And he's calling you and I to say, we're going to keep our eyes on him and we're going to watch God do great things. Someone might say, well, wait a minute, pastor. You said a couple weeks ago that God is going to do more in 2021 than you can imagine. You still believe that preacher? 110%. I still believe this could be a year where we see people's lives changed, not because we're this great church. Now, let me just say we are a great church in my opinion. Okay. I think we have an amazing church. I apologize to those that found out on Facebook. I took pictures of you. Hopefully you can forgive me for that. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Just go on our Facebook page. You'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. No joke. One of them almost caught me a couple times. I was like walking back and forth down the hallway with my phone like this, trying to take pictures of them. I felt like a stalker or something like at a mall, you know, like trying to take pictures through windows and whatnot. Okay. If a visitor walked in or somebody coming up to like the UPS guy would have been like, what is this guy doing? But when you think about this idea of just serving him and getting before him, man, I believe we have not even scratched the surface of what a church can be in Christ, what a church can accomplish for the glory of Christ. When we finally get our eyes off of this, just, just the life stuff, I'm not saying it doesn't affect us and we don't enjoy the blessings of God and we don't pray for things and, and stand up against those things. I'm not saying that. I'm saying my full attention, where I really fix my eyes, Yes, I notice all this, and we can speak out against all this. I'm fine with that. But, but where I really fix my gaze is upon Christ. Do you know why else that's important? Not just because he endured all that and can give us the strength to endure, but because he's the only one that never changes. We change. Things in our culture change. People change. Positions change. Leaders change. Policies change. Christ is the same. What is it? yesterday, today, and so I better fix my eyes on something that's not going to change, not going to fluctuate with the just ebb and flow of the day and age. See, we have a distinct purpose in the world today as followers of Christ. Again, maybe you don't feel like that is true. Maybe you have believed the lies of the enemy that somehow you aren't usable anymore. But preacher, you know, God called me to do this or that. 
I put it off, I fought it, I walked away, I wandered, I drifted, and now, you know, 20 years has gone by, preacher, and, and I, don't, I don't know if God can use me anymore. I mean, I, no, you don't, you don't understand. God has not changed. He still will use you. He will still take everything that you've gone through, and by his amazing grace, use it to strengthen you and to bless others and to glorify his name. If you will fix your eyes on Christ as a follower of Christ, you know him as your savior, you are usable to him. But pastor, I don't know the Bible like you do. Preacher, I don't have all the talents like so-and-so does. And ask you all that. Have you fixed your eyes on Christ and are you desiring to be used? He will use you. And it's just spending time with him, growing in that relationship as we talked about the last couple of weeks and we're going to watch him do great things. Stop listening to the voices around you and start listening to the voice of the one who gave all for you. I'm not saying we don't listen to encouragement and yes, even at times criticism when it's pushing us towards the things of Christ when it's done in a loving and humble way. What I'm saying is we have all these voices that are trying to speak into our lives. And sometimes we've allowed those voices to get so loud, we've quieted the voice of the one who gave all for us. I'm saying the number one voice we need to listen to is the voice of Christ and working through the Holy Spirit by the word of God. And we tune into that voice. And then these other voices, they're still there. And again, we can... By the way, this is a side point, but you know you can choose what influences you allow into your life, right? You can choose who has the freedom to speak into your life. Just because somebody has a position or a YouTube channel or a website or whatever title before or after their name, that doesn't automatically mean they get freedom to speak into your life. You can say with wisdom and discernment, God, give me the wisdom to know what voices should I be listening to? Again, it doesn't mean we don't listen to criticizing voices at times, as long as that is the voice of criticism that's constructive unto Christ-likeness, not a critic who just wants to make you more like them, right? Coach and critic, two different things. Coach gives criticism, right? I'm, I'm quite sure that Mike Eliano, when he's coaching those boys on the basketball team, pretty sure he gave a little criticism every now and then. Is that fair? Maybe a little more than, I don't know, I, I know about, but I'm just saying. He's just grinning at me like, I'm sure he's never had anyone run or anything like that for, you know, for not listening to criticism. But as a coach, he gives criticism. He has to say, listen, you did X, Y, Z. You really need to do it like this. But I guarantee you that Mike's the kind of coach that's going to come alongside a kid that's putting his best effort out there and is doing it well. He's going to say, hey, you, you listened. You did well. You're doing that. You're applying this. Good job. See, that's a coach. Tells me what I need to hear to get to where I want to be in Christian sense in Christ. Okay, loving and humble, but, but yet firm at times. A critic says and wants you to be like them. Well, you need to think like this and act like this and do like this because this is what I think is best. It's about forming you to make you more like what they want, not making you all that God would have you to be or help you to be all that God would have you to be. And so, yes, we need to listen to some of those voices. But the number one voice we need to listen to is the one who gave all for us. I mean, the voice of God through the Holy, uh, for the scriptures by the Holy Spirit should be the loudest voice that we listen to. Greater than even spiritual leaders that we uh, listen to and, and teachers, and they're all good, nothing wrong with that. But man, he better have predominance over all of that. Just like our vision and our eyes better be fixed on him above all else. And so as we unpack this idea of God having a distinct purpose for us, as we fix our eyes on him and we listen to the voice of God, we will find ourselves being aware of what's going on around us and how we can impact this world for the glory of God. And so before we move into 
how we're 21st century temples, I want to go back a little bit. So we're going to go back to go forward. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 15. This is kind of an amazing couple of chapters in 2 Chronicles dealing with the temple, uh, the dedication of the temple, different things that went on with the temple, the original temple, Solomon's temple. And I just want to read two verses here that kind of highlight the, the, the purpose and intent of the temple. And this, this is not the exhaustive verses, but this gives us an idea of God's view of the temple. And so Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 15. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attendant, attend rather, unto the prayer that is made in this place, this place being the temple. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. What is God saying here? For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds. Father, thank you for this morning. We pray, Father, that you would just give us wisdom and guidance and courage, uh, our hearts and minds to hear what you have for us, Lord. I know there are some in this room right now that are so full of fear and doubt with their own inabilities. They want to believe that you can use them, but, Lord, they believe they're just not there. They're just not ready. They're not like so-and-so. They just don't have this or that, or they have this or that weakness. And, and Lord, we do this all the time. We, we pull ourselves out of the race because we think we just can't keep up. But I pray that we would realize, Lord, as we walk through all of this this morning, that you are calling us not to compare ourselves to the other racers, not to compare ourselves to where they're at in the race, but to realize that you've called us just to run our race individually before you, to fix our eyes on you, not the other racers. Lord, I guess I would say this way. If we do look at the other racers, maybe it would be only to encourage them to keep going. Maybe it would be to encourage them to keep running and keep enduring unto the finish line. Thank you, Father, for your word, which opens our hearts and minds to the opportunities that you've given to us. Help us to grow in these things, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pretty powerful passage here, and it would have been pretty powerful to these who received it originally. And as we always said, there are things when we go into the Old Testament, we have to pause and say, okay, is this something that is a pattern or is this a principle? And so again, we are going to talk about this first temple and what happened with that temple, what happened after that. But I want us to see the importance of this to the original audience. This was, this was earth-shaking to them. And what's so powerful about this in Solomon's temple is it was the first permanent connection point between heaven and earth. This moment creates the first permanent connection point between heaven and earth. Now, many of you know before this, they had the tabernacle which was basically a, a form of a, a temple that they could move around. I'll, I'll phrase it that way. A, a house of worship that they could transport, could move around. But this is going to be a fixed location, a fixed point that God says, this house, this temple will be the place of my presence. This will be the place where I'll have connection with my people, Israel, with the nation of Israel. So this is a pretty amazing moment in the history of Israel. This is, this is powerful to see that God is willing to dwell with mankind. 
His presence will dwell in this place. And so these people are just overwhelmed by this. It's an amazing moment. When you read all of this, how God moves and his presence falls, it's just a powerful, powerful moment. But I want us to realize when we look at this point, I want us to see a few things about this temple that also God might be calling us to understand as 21st century temples. So God revealed, just to give you a little bit of a background here, a little history. God revealed to David that a temple would be built as a place of worship, prayer, and sacrifice in Jerusalem. However, David was not the builder, but his son, Solomon. The temple was complete around 957 BC and was as impressive uh, to say the least. We read a description of the temple in 1 Kings and Second Chronicles. And so we read descriptions of all the different things that went into the temple. And again, uh, it's just amazing to see the detail they put in. The size and magnitude of the temple was astounding. It is considered by many to be Solomon's greatest achievement during his reign. Solomon's greatest achievement during his reign. Let me give you the, the, the basic descriptions of Solomon's temple. The Bible describes or, or depicts Solomon's temple and suggests that the inside ceiling was 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, and 50 feet high. The highest point on the temple was about 20 stories or about 207 feet. Solomon, and this is a reference from a, a resource that came across, I believe it was called the Jewish like, Literary Library uh, online. And this is what they talked about in regards to Solomon's temple. Solomon spared no expense for the building's creation. He ordered vast quantities of cedar wood from King Hiram of Tyre. And you see this in 1 Kings, uh, again, referenced there. Had huge blocks of choicest stone quarried and commanded that the building's foundation be laid with hewn stone, not to mention all of the gold that was used to overlay the inside of the temple. To complete the massive project, he imposed forced labor on all his subjects, drafting people for work shifts that sometimes lasted a month at a time. Some 3,300 officials were appointed to oversee the temple's construction. Solomon assumed such heavy debts in building the temple that he is forced to pay off King Hiram by handing over 20 towns in Galilee. Think about that for a second. He got so much materials from Hiram, that he had to pay him off by giving him 20 cities in Galilee. I mean, that's a debt. That's a visa card right there. That's a, that's a, that's a deal breaker. I mean, Solomon invested so much time and energy and resources into this temple. Why would Solomon do all this? Why was it worth all of that? How could it possibly be worth all the effort that it required? The truth is, all of this and more for the king of kings pales in comparison to what God has done for us. And yet the most vital aspect of the temple wasn't found in its building material, but in a, a section of the temple that we call, that was called the Holy of Holies. The place the Ark of the Covenant sat, and it was the place of God's presence. See, all the gold, all the cedar, all the massive size and it really paled in comparison to that, that holy of holies and what the presence of God represented to the people of God. That this is the place that God's presence dwelled. And people would travel. When you read the stories in the Old Testament, people would travel from miles around just to be in awe and to see this amazing feat. 
Solomon's temple was desecrated and robbed and then destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Following its destruction, after the Jews returned to the land under Ezra, and when we read Ezra, Nehemiah, and those accounts, when they returned to the land, we see the temple was rebuilt. Later, under the rule of Herod, there was large modifications to the temple and surrounding hillside, expanding and enlarging the temple. This is the temple that Jesus would have went to in the time of the uh, New Testament. While the building, or I'm sorry, the, the temple was finally destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. While the building identified as the temple was destroyed, we need to understand this. While that massive, impressive, amazing feat that really was identified as the place of God's presence, while that physical temple was destroyed, Christ has built new temples. Not with bricks and gold, but out of earthen vessels. Go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter six. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter six and verse sixteen. Second Corinthians six sixteen says this And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell with them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, in context here, we can break it down. Paul's dealing with this idea of relationships and and talks about being unequally yoked and all that. So, understanding context, this is dealing with a little bit of a different perspective. But I want to focus in on that key phrase in verse 16. The phrase is that we are the temple of the living God. Who's we? The church, the body of Christ, the individuals. You see, we in Christ are living temples. We are living temples, holy and set apart for his purpose. You are a 21st century temple. Now, listen, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, I'm not as (laughs) impressive as Solomon's temple. You're right. You're more impressive. You might think, well, wait a minute. What about all the gold and the size and the sheer magnitude of it all? That's fine. You are more impressive in what God has done in you and how God has changed you and how God has built you up as a temple than anything we've ever seen done physically before. See, there are some things about the temple, the original temple, that are still true of 21st century temples today. So I want to point out two things that are similar, or that are the same, rather, than or the, as, as today, 21st century temples, as it was with Solomon's temple. And so two things I want to point out, and then next week we'll unpack even a couple more similarities between 21st century temples and the original temple. So the first thing we have to note, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Some things of the temple then should be true of the temples today. The first thing we have to note is it was visible. It was visible. The title of the message this morning, uh, when I was thinking through and preparing this, is Visible Temples. We must be visible temples. You see, the temple originally was very visible. It was obvious. Go to Matthew chapter 5. I know we're looking at a few different verses this morning, but Matthew chapter 5. 
We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. See, the first temple was visible. It was obvious. You couldn't miss it. And I think that God is calling us as 21st century temples today to be visible. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, the truth is a 21st century temple is called to be visible. It was for all to see when God built that temple through Solomon. Again, people traveled from far and wide to see the temple in all its wonder. It was as oppressive as any other feet and more so in that time. But we as temples of God, we must make ourselves visible. Not impressing with all that we have or carrying ourselves as better than someone else, but living in the world, but not of the world. Displaying the light of Christ so that others may see and receive. See, we are living as temples today and we got to be visible temples, open and shining this light of Christ that God displays before us as he works in us. You see, we can shine the light of Christ into the darkness around us. And the truth is when the light is shown into the darkness, the darkness flees. When the darkness flees, the light is left and we are now able to share the truth of all that God is doing. One author said it well. I like this when I was preparing this week. Darkness alone cannot dispel the light, but the smallest light can dispel the greatest darkness. Darkness alone cannot dispel the light, but the smallest light can dispel the greatest darkness. See, we are called for such a time as this that in the world today, yes, there's darkness. By the way, that's been true since Genesis chapter 3. Right? There's been darkness in the world since the fall of man and creation. And so what do we do with this darkness? How do we dispel the darkness? When we look into the world today, again, since the fall, this is true. There is a great spiritual darkness. And the answer is not to shout at the darkness for being dark. The solution that is that we as light bearers of Christ are carried and displayed the light of Christ to the world in the darkness. The solution is not to yell at the darkness for being dark. The solution is to be a city on a hill and shine that light of Christ into the darkness so that others may see and receive the glorious gospel that we've received. Which brings us to the question of how do I hide my lights? If we're called to be light bearers and to shine our light of Christ into the world, then how in the world do I hide my light so I know what to avoid? Well, As I was looking into this, I find it kind of interesting. The phrasing here in Matthew says, no one lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. Now, I'm not a very smart person. But if I had a wicker basket, a bushel, if you will, and I lit a candle, I don't think it would be wise to put the candle on the floor and then put the wicker basket over top of it and just go, I bet this is a good idea. Just see what happens. The reason this is written this way is to be so obviously a bad idea. This is not what anyone would do. So how do we put a bushel over our lights? Let's apply it to our lives today. What should we avoid or what should we be aware of as to whether or not am I, am I covering my lights? The truth is when we choose to allow fear to dictate when we share our faith, 
we are hiding our light. When I choose to allow fear to dictate to me when and how I share my faith, well, they won't listen to me. They're not going to listen. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to say. They're going to think this of me. When we allow fear to dictate to us sharing our faith, we're putting our light under a bushel. We're making the choice to hide our lights. And we're acknowledging that that fear is greater than what God can do in us. Also, as one commentary says, another way that we hide our light. Author said this, inconsistent living and unconfessed sin in the life of a believer will become a basket-like covering which hides the light of God. So just a couple examples of how we hide our light and what we should avoid as light bearers into the darkness is we do not want to let fear dictate when we share our faith. If the Spirit of God is moving and you know you need to share your faith with this person, don't let fear, don't let the enemy tell you that you can't. You might say, well, but Pastor, you don't get it. It's awkward. <laughs> Listen, sharing your faith can be awkward. If we're being real, there's lots of times where you're like, we're talking about this and I'm going to jump over here to this. I don't even know how to make that transition. Like they're talking about their car and you're like, oh, really? You just bought a new minivan. That's great. Can I tell you about Jesus? And your coworker or friend are like, sure, sure, I guess. I didn't know we had jumped gears, but okay. There's some, it can be, it can seem awkward. I'm telling you, when we realize, as we said a couple years ago in a series we did about evangelism, the reality is when I share my faith, I'm just honestly telling someone else of all that God has done for me and saving me and redeeming me and loving me when I was unlovable. It's about sharing with them that they can know a hope that goes beyond anything in this world. It's about sharing with them a love that God has for them, that their sin, while great, can be covered and cleansed by the grace of God. It's about making them aware that there is a penalty for our sin. And that penalty is in a place called hell if we die in our sin. But letting them know that that's not the only option, that God wants to save them. God wants them to be redeemed so that they can be with him for all of eternity. It's about just sharing what God has done in your life. But see, when I let fear dictate to me when I do that and how I do that, I'm covering that light. Oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. And I just walk away. But also not only letting fear dictate, but another way, and again, not the only ways, but two simple ways would be when I live inconsistently in my walk with Christ. I'm saved, but I'm just kind of here and there. I'm not really consistent in my time with him, growing in him. And also unconfessed sin. Inconsistent living and unconfessed sin in the life of a believer will become a basket-like covering. The enemy loves when we have unconfessed sin. Our flesh loves when we have unconfessed sin. Listen, we all fall short. We've all been tempted and can sin at any time. But the difference is when you find yourself realizing something that was a sinful decision, do you repent of it and give it unto him? Or do you go, ah, I need to hold on to this. I don't know how I can tell God about this. Man, I feel so guilty and ashamed. You're at the enemy and your flesh love when we do that. Do you know why? Because the flesh and the enemy knows that will weaken us. And we'll cower back. Well, who am I? Look what I just did. I can't share my faith. I can't shine my light. Look what I just did. And the enemy just applauds. So here's what I say. Don't give them that victory. Don't give your flesh the victory. You decide now. You know what? No, God has saved me for eternity. All my sin has been washed clean. If I sin today, I confess and repent. I give it back to him. I say, God, I'm sorry for that. Give me the strength to move on. He will. And the enemy cowers because now we're light bearers again. And we're not letting anything cover our our light. We're not going to allow fear to cover our light. See, the temple was visible 
And here's the truth of it. We need to be visible. We need to be out in the world, shining our lights, the light of Christ. But also, and secondly this morning, it wasn't only visible, it was also a house of prayer. It was also a house of prayer. So the Solomon's temple, the first temple, was visible and a house of prayer. We, as 21st century temples, we need to be visible and centered on and passionate about prayer. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Let's go there real quick. Luke chapter 19. As we get ready to read this verse, I want you to to know kind of what's coming this morning. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you some time to prepare your hearts and minds for this. We're going to have an invitation here in just a little while and, and give you a chance to respond. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask you to kind of think about this before we even get into this point because I want you to be really thinking on this and asking God to lead you through this. I'm going to ask you in just a little bit when we have our invitation to be willing to come and bend a knee and pray for someone that you know that doesn't know Christ. Pray for that person to come to know Christ and pray for God to use you to lead them to Christ. And so in a little bit, we're going to give you that opportunity, but I want you to be thinking about that as we read through this and we talk about the idea of being visible as temples of God, 21st century temples, and also having a passion for prayer. I believe I want to give you an opportunity to put that into practice. And we're going to come in just a little bit. And we're going to pray, God, I know, I strongly believe this person isn't a believer. I really believe this person doesn't know Christ. I'm not asking you to pray for the whole world. I mean, you can. I'm asking you to pray for all of Michigan all the unsaved people in all the world to come to know Christ. Some sometimes understand when I say this, that's a fine prayer, but do we pray that prayer just to avoid the obligation of having to do something? Here's what I mean by this. And I don't mean this mean, so I pray you know my heart on this. Sometimes we pray, pray such vague prayers. We never actually have to do anything. When I pray, God, help me to lead this specific person to Christ, man, God will begin to work in that. But when I pray some heart, half heartfelt prayer of just save the world, I feel good, I feel spiritual, but I don't actually know how to do that. I don't know what to do in that. But when I get specific in my prayer life, I believe God will start to kind of give me a, a wisdom in how to apply that specific thing. I hope that makes sense. I'm not saying we don't pray for the salvation of all the people that are in the world. I'm not saying we don't pray for people that don't know Christ in Michigan. I'm just saying sometimes I think we get so vague, God's going, that's great, now take it one step farther. Come on, let's go a little deeper, and then I can actually show you what I want to, how I want to use you to impact your community for Christ. And so understand that, that we are being called as 21st century temples to have a passion for prayer. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 46. Now again, in context, we're looking at the principle here. So in context, Jesus is cleansing the temple of the, uh, those that were using the temple to make money, to rip people off. Um, they were basically saying, oh, no, no, that sacrifice isn't good enough. You've got to buy our lamb. Oh, no, the money changers would come, or people would come, they have their money exchanged, and money changers were ripping them off in the exchange rate, basically. And so Jesus got upset about this. And I love this story because it shows us that Jesus, again, wasn't this passive hippie that just was like, whatever. Whenever God's glory was going to be attacked, he defended it. And so let's look here. Luke chapter 19, verse 46. Saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, what house is he talking about there? He's talking about, this is Herod's temple, right? They're in the temple. 
So this is Herod's temple. This is the temple. So in context, he's speaking about the specific building. He said, this house, this house is a place of prayer. But I believe when we understand the principles of prayer and we see what happens moving forward to the New Testament and how we are called to be people of prayer, we see in the book of Acts chapter 2 that they were praying when the Spirit of God fell. I believe that the same passion that Jesus had for the people of God to be connected to prayer in the actual temple, I believe he's calling us to be people of prayer as his spiritual temples, as 21st century temples. Jesus makes it clear that just as the physical brick and mortar temple was dedicated to prayer, so must 21st century temples today. You and I as followers of Christ. This includes individual prayer, Uh, personal prayer, if you will, the time we spend individually and just quiet time before the Lord, as well as, I believe, corporate prayer or church prayer. This is saying, I believe when you look at the New Testament, you see this principle unfolding that God's people are a people of prayer, that individually we pray. We spend time with him one-on-one. We pray and we seek him and we, we ask our requests of him and we ask him to shape us and form us and we lay all that before him. But then we come together as the body of Christ and we pray as a body. We lift up requests as a body. We give opportunities for this, uh, tons of opportunities, I think, in every single service. This morning, for in, fa- in fact, you could come a little early, and there's a room down the hallway here. It's a prayer room. You can go in. There's No one's going to hassle you at the door. No one's going to ask you anything. You just go in. You grab a seat. You pray two minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. You have a time of prayer. Why? To prepare our hearts and minds for what God's going to do when we gather together here. We pray during this service. Uh, Sunday nights, we open up for prayer. Wednesday nights, we dedicate the last half of our time together. We have a Bible study, and then we try to dedicate that last half of time. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes it's 20 minutes to just sharing some prayer concerns and then just opening up for free prayer where anyone can pray and seek God. See, I believe we need to be passionate about prayer. Our prayers are not just prayers for personal needs or even the needs of merely the church, but also our prayers must be for all peoples to come to know Christ. Again, we pray, God, would you save this nation? God, would you save these individuals? That's great. But let's take it one step farther and add on there. God, would you give me opportunity to share Christ with this person this week who I know doesn't know you? God, would you give me a wisdom that I would know someone or when somebody doesn't know Christ, I would know of that and I'm able to share Christ with them. I love this one resource pointed out saying about the temple. When the temple was completed, Solomon inaugurated it with prayer and sacrifice and even invited non-Jews to come and pray. And let that sink in for a moment. This is Old Testament. And when the, prayer, when the temple was dedicated and inaugurated, it was filled with prayer and sacrifice. And Solomon even invited non-Jews to come and pray there. He urged God to pay particular heed to their prayers. 1 Kings 8.43, Thus all the peoples of the earth will know your name and revere you, as does your people Israel, and they will recognize that your name is attached to this house that I have built. And see, as we go out from this place this morning and we live our lives as 21st century temples, we can see God use us to make an impact as we are visible and obvious to those around us as followers of Christ, but also as we pray and ask God for wisdom and guidance and direction. While we understand that the temple was for the Jewish people to have connection with God through sacrifice and worship, we know that through Christ, we do not need to go to a certain place to have a connection with God. I want to be really clear on this because I think some of us were taught some things growing up. This is not the temple. 
meaning this building. This room is not the Holy of Holies. This is just drywall and carpet. There's nothing fancy about this room. Do you know when this room and this building becomes the church, the house of God? When the body of Christ is gathered together. When we gather as the body of Christ, now it's the church. Now I understand, please understand, I understand we respect the building. We see it as a testimony, how we treat the building. We're good stewards of what God has given us. I understand all of that. I understand in our culture, this building is called the church. I get all that. What I'm saying is we need to understand that this is not the Holy of Holies. You don't have to come here to have a connection with God. But I will tell you this. I've met very few Christians who consistently deny time together with the body of Christ and grow. Just being real. I don't think God intended us to get saved and then not connect with a local body. I don't see that in the New Testament. Do you have to come here to know God, to be saved, and to have a connection with him? No. But I will suggest that if you want to grow in Christ grow in understanding, serve the body, do all that God has called you to do. I believe that we all need connection with the local body so that we can be encouraged and instructed in the things of God and given an opportunity to serve. So this is not the temple. We, the body of Christ, we are the temples of the living God. We see the temple in the Old Testament as an example. We glean some key wisdom from and apply to our lives. Just as the temple was visible and obvious to its surrounding culture, so must we be as followers of Christ. Just as the temple was a place of prayer, so must we be people of prayer. So some application questions. How is God calling you to be visible this week? How is he calling you to get some serious in your prayer life? How is God calling you to be visible this week? How is God calling you to get serious in your prayer life? And then lastly, do you know someone that doesn't know Christ? And would you, would you desire... I'm not asking you to do it because you're in church and everyone's looking at you or whatever. I don't want you to come forward. If you really don't, if you really don't mean God, use me, God, send me, God, give me the words to say. I don't want you to come forward because I feel like we do that sometimes. We just go, okay, I guess I better do it because I feel bad. No. But if you want to, whether they're in your seats or you want to come and bend a knee and say, God, I know, I'm, I'm almost positive this person doesn't know Christ. I pray you'd give me wisdom and how to be visible before them as a follower of Christ. We're going to unpack that a little bit. What does that look like? But it's, it's just being there. It's just being real before them. It's being a follower of Christ that isn't or doesn't always try to act perfect. <laughs> it's about being honest and saying, listen, we all struggle. We all have issues. But it's about also sharing the light of Christ. This means greater than giving my opinion on something, I give them Christ. We can share our opinions, but man, are we more concerned about their spiritual standing before God than anything else? And maybe we would say, God, give me wisdom. Help me to be visible. Help me to be praying for them and praying for the needs of the church, be praying for what you're doing, be praying for the coming year, whatever it is. However God is, is leading you to respond, maybe you'd come and say, God, I know this person doesn't know Christ. I pray to give me wisdom and an opportunity to share Christ with them this week, that you would be glorified, that they would come to know Christ. But here's the thing. If you share Christ and they don't get saved, they don't repent, they don't turn, they don't pray, Please don't beat yourself up. Don't think you blew it. We are not called to save anyone. We're just called to be faithful, right? visible, praying, light bearers. We just go and share the light and let God do the, the work in them. Some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. We don't increase their spiritual standing. God does that. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we go before the Lord?
Father, we ask that as we bow before you today, that you would do what only you can do and work in our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that as followers of Christ today, that we are the temples of the living God, that you have graciously decided to fill us with your presence by the working of the Holy Spirit. I believe you are calling us for just a time like this. And Father, I pray that we'd be visible temples this week. That it would be obvious that we love you and that we desire to see you glorified in all things. Father, I pray right now for the one in this room that's a follower of Christ, but if they were honest, Lord, they know that they've made some choices that would not honor you. Maybe they're beating themselves up right now. They know they need to turn from this thing and walk away from it, Lord, whatever it is. Maybe they already repented of it, but that guilt is still lingering. I pray that they would know that your grace is for them, that they are not useless, but useful, and that you desire to use them right where they are. And so I pray that as 21st century temples, that we would be willing to step out by faith and be used by you to make a difference in this world today. May our gaze, our eyes be fixed upon you, and may the voice of God be greater than any other voice we listen to. Father, fill us with your peace and your presence. Give us wisdom and guidance. And I pray, Lord, again, that as we spend time this morning just responding to you, that if we know someone that doesn't know Christ, I pray that we would be willing to go and share the light with them, that you would be glorified. And that's what we're called to do, Lord, to be light bearers for you. And so, Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Again, if you know someone that doesn't know Christ and you want to come and pray for that person, pray for wisdom to share Christ with them, to pray for the opportunity to let them know that Jesus loves them and cares for them, maybe you'd come and pray. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him this morning as we just spend some time before his throne?